Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. As soon as we wake up, the most amazing science carries us through our everyday tasks. Whether that's using a toaster to make breakfast or checking a smartphone for the weather report. Yet most of us don't understand the physics that makes our modern world so convenient. From high-speed elevators to the complex inner workings of ultrasound imaging and TSA screening devices, the technology we routinely use can seem mystifying. How do touchscreens work? How do our wrist fitness monitors keep track of our steps? How do we glide through toll booths using EasyPass or find our way to new places using GPS in our hybrid cars? Here to help is James Kakalios with his new book, The Physics of Everyday Things. The subtitle is The Extraordinary Science Behind an Ordinary Day. James Kakalios is the Taylor Distinguished Professor of Physics at University of Minnesota, author previously of the bestseller, The Physics of Superheroes. Professor Kakalios, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Tom. Pleasure to, to be here. I want to uh, start with a bit of your background. Uh, how did you get into uh, physics? I understand reading uh, a little bit that uh, you uh, once considered a career in patent law. Wow, that's a deep dive. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> um, you know, I liked science as a grade school kid. Um, and there was a TV show on public television called The 21st Century, narrated by Walter Cronkite. And um, I'm actually quite old, so growing up in the 60s and the space race and everything, science was um, very attractive. I kind of thought that I wasn't up to it when I went on in my education and and, um, uh, junior high school and high school. And an 11th grade math teacher, trigonometry teacher, uh, said, well, what are you going to do if you go to college? And I was growing up in this working class uh, neighborhood in Queens, and so it wasn't a given that all of us were going to be going to college. Um, and at the time, I just liked to read, and I was kind of quick with the lips, so I thought, oh, law. <laughs> and he said, oh, well, but you're pretty good at math, so maybe you might think about patent law, which I had no idea what that was, and I looked into it. Um, and the more I looked into it, the more I see I have to take science and engineering classes and um, as an undergraduate. And so by the time I actually enrolled at City College of New York, um, I was an engineering major <laughs> and volunteered to work in a laboratory and wound up changing my major to physics, and that's how it happened. But yeah. Uh, kind of a strange, circuitous route. Hmm. And you you began a, a seminar which turned into a book, uh, which it, it has some obvious uh, parallels. I don't want to get to uh, what reaction you've gotten, especially from the students. You Your, your freshman <laughs> seminar, you created everything I know about science I learned from reading comic books, which, which I could see would be attractive and popular. Right. My colleagues in the physics department say that explains a great deal. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so this... So the, the the idea of freshman seminars uh, were these classes introduced at the university that were not tied to any particular curriculum, and you had um, they were small seminar classes, about fifteen students or so, always taught by a faculty member, and they would just kind of go into different interesting uh, topics. Interesting, you know, they were proposed by the professors. There was a chemistry professor at Minnesota, Larry Miller, who created a class called The Color Red. And he focused on all the different chemistry associated with that color, from stained glass windows to leaves changing color to oil paintings. Um, So I created one uh, 
thinking, because I had been using in my regular introductory physics classes um, examples from superhero comic books every now and then. Uh, students always lament in, in Physics 101, when am I ever going to use this stuff in my real life? And interestingly enough, whenever I use superheroes to illustrate physics principles, students never wonder when they're going to use this <laughs> in the real life. Apparently they all have plans after graduation that involve spandex and patrolling the city. Anyway, um, I thought, just as almost kind of like a, as a challenge, could I create an entire class where the only examples came from superhero comic books? And um, it was a very... The answer turned out to be, eventually, yes. <laughs> um, it turned out to be a popular class. One of the, the, the early popularity, the first time I taught the class was in 2001. And at that time, uh, the only you know, big-budget, successful superhero movie had been the first X-Men movie that came out in 2000. The Sam Raimi, uh, Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie wasn't going to come out until the spring of 2002. And so at that point, when I first created the class, um, superheroes weren't dominating the culture the way they are now. And so I'd have students taking the class, and they were history majors, they were journalism majors, they were mechanical engineering majors. And in particular, the history and journalism, about, to my surprise, at least half the class were not comic book fans. And then when I asked them, well, why are you taking it? And they said, oh, because I really liked physics in high school, um, and I wanted to take another physics class, but they were really concerned that our regular physics classes would be too rich for their blood and, and you know, at too high a level. So they thought, oh, physics of superheroes, how hard can that be? <laughs> so they, they kind of knew the physics, but they didn't know anything about the superheroes, so I'd have to always explain who these characters were and how this person was exposed to lethal radiation while being struck with lightning and thus became super strong. <laughs> right. <laughs> things like that. Nothing points out how silly some of these things are, having to explain them. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, we'll get to just a couple more questions on this. We'll get to the physics of everyday things. Amazing science behind, uh, you know, an ordinary day. That's how you frame it. A person wakes right. up and then, then uh, you know, travels to a presentation and, uh, and mm-hmm. just ordinary. But um, you, you've consulted on some, uh, some superhero movies, I believe, right? Yes. So... The National Academy of Sciences set up a program called the Science and Entertainment Exchange, where they basically match make um, academics and people who are creating content in Hollywood, uh, television or movies. And in one of the early stages, now the, this, this consulting is, is done on a volunteer basis on the part of the professors. Um, and one of the early uh, requests that they got when the program was just getting up off the ground was from Warner Brothers, and they were working on this film, Watchmen, which, if you're into comic books, it's kind of like, um, you know, when, they, when, when the National Academy of Sciences contacted me, they said, have you heard of this movie, Watchmen, or this, you know, comic book, Watchmen? It's kind of like saying, have you heard of this movie, Citizen Kane? <laughs> it's kind of like a big deal among comic book fans. And so... Um, they said, would you be interested in doing some science consulting? And, and it was kind of interesting experience because, on the one hand, because the graphic novel Watchmen is considered to be, you know, one of the best examples of the form uh, among comic book fans, 
they were trying to be scrupulously um, faithful to the source material. The filmmakers were. So if I were to come in and say, oh, this is completely wrong from a science point of view, you have to change the whole thing. And they say, well, we could aggravate a million rabid Watchmen fans or one physics professor from Minnesota. (laughs) (laughs) I'd know what decision I'd make, and I'm the physics professor from Minnesota. So, but the other hand, talking to, like, Art, um, uh, Andrew, Andrew McDowell, who was the production designer, he said, we want to know, we want to know all the science not so much because we're going to put it into the movie, but it will inform all the decisions that we make um, as we set up uh, the se- the sets, as we uh, you know develop the film. We want to know what's around the corner of a long hallway, even if the audience doesn't go down that corridor, because any time that the audience is questioning the science that they're seeing, or even questioning, saying, "Well, that's not what a real lab looks like," or "That's not that that looks totally fake." is a moment when they're not paying attention to the story. And so their job is, they're obviously not going to be 100% or or even some small fraction physically accurate. I mean, it is a superhero movie, but they want to make sure that once the audience grants them a suspension of disbelief, that they don't, you know, abuse it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That they don't um, take advantage of it and lose the audience at some point. Uh, during the film. So it was a very interesting experience. And then when it was over, um, close to when the movie was going to come out, the University of Minnesota, knowing that I had done this, asked me if I would make a video about the science of Watchmen, and they would put it up on the University of Minnesota's YouTube page. So I did. It was a little seven-minute thing um, about the physics of Dr. Manhattan, who is a character in, in the story who has quantum mechanical powers, and it gave me an opportunity to kind of explain some of the basic principles of quantum mechanics. Um, And the video went viral, and it's gotten nearly two million views um, at this stage. Uh, I told my dean, you know, I could teach a thousand students a year for 18 centuries before I get, I reach that many people. Um, And it actually... Uh, won a regional Emmy Award. So um, I am, I'm trying to get my colleagues to call me Emmy Laureate. <laughs> so far, unsuccessful. Uh, so far, unsuccessful, yes. Yeah. Uh, wh- who, who's your favorite superhero? Uh, I have, I have a, a, a several. Um, uh, so I've always, even as a kid, I was always a fan of The Flash. Um, so I'm very happy that he has a TV show on now that's, um, actually doesn't <laughs> stink. <laughs> and, uh, very, very pleased with that. Um, and I just love the concept of being able to go real fast. And anytime I'm stuck in rush hour traffic or my plane has been canceled is a time when I really wish I had super speed in addition to everything else that I had to do in a day. Um, but I also really liked uh, the Fantastic Four. Um, there was a group of family and and their leader, Reed Richards, was a scientist, and um, they'd have these great adventures. And and so, anyway, um, those are, I'd have to say, from Marvel and DC. Here I'm being very politic <laughs> and making sure I pick one from each company. Um, and now, so yeah, those those would be the ones that, no matter what's going on, I will kind of like take a look and make sure I follow what's going, you know, what's going on with these characters. Mm-hmm. And, and, 
stay up on it. Are, are you able to turn off your scientist inner voice and just enjoy the comics? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I am. I am also a fan. So I don't go to the movie, say, with a pad of paper and a, and a calculator and say, ooh, my physics sense is tingling. I just, mm. um, you know, I go to it as a fan. And now it's kind of like I'm not looking. If there's something really egregious, you know, I'll note it. Um, but if there's more, more to the point, what I'm hoping for is to find something right. Um, so that it's like a little he- hidden Easter egg. And sometimes then I can write some sort of essay that will go up on Wired.com or, or some other si- source talking about, hey, this thing that was in the movie, that's actually real. You know, and that's, uh, so that's a lot of fun. Can you uh, select a you know problem or issue maybe from a, a comic uh, that you present to your students uh, 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 an entree right? a way into a physics problem? Sure. Um, well, one of the classic ones that I've used many times involves the death of Spider-Man's girlfriend, Gwen Stacy. Um, in that was in 1973. In as you well know, Tom, Amazing Spider-Man number 121. <laughs> as I well know, yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> um, and in this story. Uh, what the Green Goblin, one of Spider-Man's foes, has kidnapped Gwen and brought her to the top of a bridge in order to lure Spider-Man into battle. During their fight, she's knocked off the top of the bridge. She falls to her apparent doom. Spidey shoots down his web and stops her at the last moment. But then when he brings her back up to the top of the bridge, he discovers that she's dead, um, even though he caught her in the webbing. And it was a big deal in comic books back in the 70s and still today because it was one of the first times that a long-standing recurring character, an innocent bystander, died when the hero and villain fought. And it's also very significant because it's been over 40 years, and Gwen Stacy is still dead. Um, Usually in comic books, no matter how you die, you eventually get better. But (laughs) Gwen belongs to this small select group of characters who's never quite recovered from her fatality. And then, but we can analyze it from a physics point of view. We can ask, if you fall off the top of a bridge, um, how fast are you going by the time the webbing reaches her? And if we estimate that she's fallen about 300 feet, and this is a key thing, because we, we are just plugging in some numbers, we're using common sense. We don't, in nowhere in the comic book does it tell us how tall the bridge tower is, but we know it's not three feet, we know it's not three miles. Well, 300 feet sounds about right. So if she's fallen 300 feet, how fast is she going when the webbing reaches her? We can analyze this from a physics point of view, and she's going about nearly 95 miles per hour. If the webbing stops her in, say, half a second, how much force does it have to exert on her? It's equivalent to a deceleration of 10 Gs, 10 times the acceleration due to gravity. And yes, fighter pilots and astronauts have withstood 10 Gs. They tend to be in reinforced suits and with padded chairs. Um, But it doesn't require, that part doesn't require suspension of disbelief. You tell someone you're going 95 miles per hour, you stop them in half a second with a force of 10 Gs, you go, yeah, and they died. And, And this is why we have airbags in our automobiles, because you want the sud, you want the stop to not be sudden, like if you hit the steering column or the windshield, you want an airbag that deforms under contact and takes a little bit longer uh, to bring you to rest. Because the longer the time, the less force it has to exert to achieve the same change in motion. 
you know, if you have a bungee cord, you want a bungee cord that's elastic and very stretchy. You don't want one that's really stiff, like hemp rope or something. That would make a very bad bungee cord. So um, you can you use that physics principle, and then you analyze something from a comic book, and then you show how it's relevant to real life, like why airbags save lives. Interesting, yeah. That, that, that's uh, a good way a good way in for especially for for students. Mm-hmm. Um, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll get into the new book, "The Physics of Everyday Things: The Extraordinary Science Behind an Ordinary Day." We're talking with James Kakalios, who is the Taylor Distinguished Professor of Physics at University of Minnesota. Authors, we've been saying the bestseller, uh, "The Physics of Superheroes," and uh, we're going to be talking about the new book following this break. Management Minute is a service of the MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business at Utah State University. I'm Professor Scott Hammond. I once saw a near fistfight at work because a well-meaning worker awkwardly corrected his colleague. First ask, can I give you some feedback? That opens the door. Then ask a non-judgmental question like, are you frustrated with these results? This creates the need. Finally, give a personal answer. Say, this is what I did and what I learned. Don't say, this is the best way or the only way. Remember, the last thing you say is what people are most likely to remember. So always end on a positive note. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU John M. Huntsman School of Business One-Year Master of Business Administration, specializing in strategic business development and value creation, business analytics, and finance. Details at huntsman.usu.edu slash MBA. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Our guest uh, today is James Kakalios. He's Taylor Distinguished Professor of Physics at University of Minnesota. His new book is The Physics of Everyday Things, The Extraordinary Science Behind an Ordinary Day. You're welcome to join this conversation with your question or comment to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. If you ever wanted to ask a physicist a question, here is your opportunity, upraxcess at gmail.com. You can also call us, 800-826-1495. Professor Kakalios, I'm quoting you here. This is from an, an interview that you gave to APS Physics. Um, this was, I found interesting. You say, I want to get physics across to people who only plan to take one physics class. Why? Um, because they may, they, if they're only going to take one physics class, they're not going to become scientists or engineers. But hopefully for the remainder of their life, they will be citizens and voters. And as citizens and voters, we are being called upon more and more to have opinions about scientific and technological issues whether it's climate change, alternative energy, genetically modified organisms, vaccinations. And so the more that people can educate themselves, um, the more they will be able to make informed decisions and make decisions that are technically sound and not just sound technical. We were talking about uh, superheroes, of course, your previous book, a previous book, The Physics of Superheroes. It occurred to me that with today's technology you go back 100 years or you know a little more from the perspective of that person we're all superheroes at least with the technology that we have absolutely it's, it's amazing. absolutely and and some of the and and if if you even looked at um predictions of what life was going to be looking like in the future from just you know 
40, 50 years ago, they totally misread um, uh, uh, the information revolution that we had. That's exactly right. Um, you know, you would never take a communi- you would never take a cell phone right now that had all the capabilities of a Star Trek communicator. You would go, what? There's no, there's no music. There's no videos. <laughs> I can't get read my email. What's the point of this? Mm-hmm. Uh, it just does ship to ship. Um, so uh, that's exactly right. We have uh, a tremendous amount of capabilities, and if you go back, and if you're willing to go back, you know, much longer, like you say, um, there's no question uh, that things like an iPad or some sort of smart tablet would seem like some sort of, you know, <laughs> satanic device <laughs> from, that that traps people's souls <laughs> or whatever mm-hmm. when you're watching a movie. Um, it's just incredible technology that we take for granted. Touch screens, mm-hmm. all of that. Um, it's gone on so fast. Uh, and it's all been driven by our intelligence. Mm. I mean, we are not as strong as the bear or can't fly like an eagle. Our only competitive advantage is our brains. And so this is why we have to use them every day, because the forces of evil are always waiting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, maybe we could uh, start there, the the, uh, the smartphone um, sure. and, 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 and touch screen. I, I remember when uh, the uh, I saw the first ads for the iPhone. And you know you you're, you're swiping up and down. You're you know you, mm-hmm. the screen changes as you change the orientation of of the device. Mm-hmm. I, I just remember being blown away. Now that's it's kind of faded a bit. I use it every day, but but mm-hmm. I, I, I remember the wonder of uh, that mm-hmm. I felt. Absolutely, and um, this is the work of thousands of people uh, just doing basic research, trying to understand properties of materials, properties of devices, um, and, and then eventually you reach a critical um, level that you can put this all together and um, uh, get, it, get it to work like this. The, the, let's, let's talk about the touch screen for a second. So you have a screen, and you don't have to move a mouse or anything like that. You, you just touch with your finger, and it's as if you clicked on that particular location. So how does that work? Well, one way it works is you can break the screen up into a bunch of small little squares like a very large checkerboard, more than just the 64 squares of a checkerboard. And you have to have some way for it to tell when you touch the screen at a given point which squares of the checkerboard are being touched. And one of the ways that it does this is using a device that's used in in a tremendous amount of different technologies that we employ called the capacitor, which is just basically two little metal plates that have some electrical charge, some positive charge on one plate, and then it's separated by a small little distance from another plate, an identical plate that has the same charge but a negative charge. So you have two little metal plates like the two slices of bread in a sandwich, and one plate's charged positive, one plate's charged negative, and it's just sitting there. And then you come around with your finger, and you've got a little bit of extra electrical charge on your fingertip. Not very much. The only time you ever notice that is when you get too much electrical charge on your fingertip and you touch a doorknob during the winter and you give yourself a shock. But you have a little bit of extra charge and you touch that square and um, you now change the amount of charge on those, that little plate, that little capacitor, that little sandwich that's got uh, the two pieces of bread that have um, charges on them. And 
that is connected up to other parts of sensors that say, ooh, this square at this location suddenly had its charge changed. So therefore, someone touched it. Therefore, if, if that square gets changed, we have this other logic system that says that means that the person was clicking on this box and do this and that. So, but central to this is that I said that the plates of the capacitor were metal, but they have to be a very special metal because if they were an ordinary metal, you wouldn't be able to see through it. You wouldn't be able to see the image that you're trying to touch. So one of the key aspects was the development of transparent metals, in essence, materials like indium tin oxide that look like window glass and yet are as conductive as metals. And this is just people doing basic material science, basic uh, uh, research in the laboratory that enables some of the technology that we use today. Hmm. Um, I want to. Uh, I'll jump around a little bit. You you have a sure. sequential here, and the the your your uh, fictional every man wakes up <laughs> to the smell of coffee because the coffee maker is uh, is on a timer. Um, I want to jump to the very end. Uh, the uh, your, your your fictional hero uh, ends his day watching Back to the Future. <laughs> yeah, uh, and that's a way for you to uh, talk about flying cars, and that caught my imagination. That's uh, certainly one of the yeah. things, you know. The, the still, of course, in the future. How uh, maybe that's <laughs> Everyone, my first. Everyone, I, I every time in all of my popular science writings, going back to superheroes, it's like, where are the jetpacks? Where are the flying cars? Um, and, and the thing is that back in the in the uh, the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, science fiction writers, comic book writers, they thought that in the future we would have a revolution in energy, which is really what you need in order to get a flying car. When what we got instead was a revolution in information. Um, you need a revolution in energy because, I mean, you could take a jetpack to work today. That's not a problem, provided that you only worked a block from your house, because it takes a lot of energy to lift a person up off the ground and fly them from one point to another. And so there's only so much energy that you can store on your back in the form of of gasoline or other fuels that will provide that thrust and that lift, unless you're willing to have, like, nuclear power, but few people will wear an unlicensed nuclear reactor on their back who are not a ghostbuster. Mm-hmm. So um, you need to have, uh, so it's energy that's the big uh, hang up there. We don't have enough energy, we can't store enough energy in a lightweight form in order for, to make these flying cars or jetpacks practical. But, you know, if you want to just send the information, well, that in, the information revolution got, was enabled basically by quantum mechanics, which was developed in the 20s and 30s, that led to solid state and semiconductor physics, led to the transistor and the laser, and eventually led to the lifestyle we enjoy today. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's 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 uh, physics and chemistry, the only two things that are standing in our way. <laughs> mm, the only two things, right? Uh, yeah. And and uh, as you write in the book, uh, the, the movie, uh, you know. 
did a tip of their cap to the to this problem, right? The, they have a exactly. Mr. Yes. Fusion is how they how they get their or lightning. That's right. I guess. So they yeah. say that there's a there's a small little device strapped to the the hood of the car, a Mr. Fusion, and you just put in any type of of organic or inorganic matter, and it is a small little nuclear fusion reactor. I mean, if we could, oh my goodness, I mean, <laughs> we could do something like that. Flying cars would be the least of the the transformations of our lifestyle. Um, that would be a way, because that's nuclear power then, that we would be able to uh, get around that energy problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, nuclear fusion is where you take, say, you know, two protons and two neutrons, and you squeeze them together, and you form a new nucleus for helium. So if you have just protons... And neutrons, those are isotopes of hydrogen. You squeeze them together, you make an isotope of helium. Uh, you make helium. Um, the helium nucleus weighs slightly less than all the protons and neutrons that you had before. And where did that mass go? E equals mc squared. That small change in mass gets converted into a very large amount of energy because you take that small change in mass and multiply it by the speed of light squared. So the energy you get from fusion is, you know, just enormous. And that is the mechanism, in fact, that goes on in the center of the sun. So if we could get, and that is the mechanism that underlies a hydrogen bomb, which is why a hydrogen bomb, where you fuse smaller nuclei together, is much more powerful than an atomic bomb, where you take a big nucleus like uranium or plutonium and you split it apart in fission. And so if we could get basically a hydrogen bomb controlled reactor <laughs> that's about the size of a can of Pringles as in the movie <laughs> that could um, uh, generate our energy because there's enough isotopes of hydrogen that you need that probably in a banana peel there's there's enough that you can get, get around um, and make this work. So Yes, the, the the movie does at least recognize that. Whether that was done deliberately or just as a goof, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> but, uh, you know, well, you got Doc Brown there, and he's a scientist. So, you know, he'd look at that thing without the Mr. Fusion, and he'd say, Great Scott, there's no way this could work. <laughs> <laughs> and he was he was credible because he was wearing a lab coat. So that's a, Absolutely, yeah. and he had wild hair. He had wild hair, that's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and played by Christopher Lloyd, so he's got yeah. the trifecta. Yeah, and anything with Christopher Lloyd is going to be interesting uh, anyway. Exactly, that's uh, right. Puts me in mind of, uh, you know, big announcement. This was years ago here at University of Utah. Um, a couple of scientists mm-hmm. said they'd invented cold fusion. They'd, uh, they'd yep. solved that problem. It turned out to be not to be replicable, but that that potentially was huge. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um uh, back at, that was in the 80s, I believe, or, or maybe early 90s. Um, and uh, yes, it was. It, it and it, it was coming at a time where there were these these other discoveries in science, like high temperature superconductivity, was in the same general time period where people who thought that they'd never lived to see such and such, you know, suddenly were being discovered. Uh, but but that is exact, and 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 so that was what they saw. This is what they reported, and the science process worked exactly the way it does, is that when you have something that's incredible, everyone likes to tr- wants to replicate it and duplicate it, especially since they said that it was uh, a relatively straightforward experiment to do. It's not like you had to rebuild 
Fermilab or something like that, or particle accelerator. So um, people did people did this, and they were unable to reproduce it. And so um, it, it didn't stand up. And then you then you go into another phase of science of why did they see what they saw that made them think that it was fusion? And that's an interesting scientific question that can be explored as well. But the process that that is the way the process works, and that way only only things that that can survive that crucible of examination are things that can be trusted um scientists you know nothing nothing a scientist likes more than showing that all their colleagues are <laughs> dopes <laughs> so uh anything that has withstood that process you can trust anything that hasn't gone through that process can be very exciting and interesting but you would not be inappropriate to withhold judgment um until you know all the facts are in mm-hmm. until it has gone through uh this this testing one one more on on this uh, particular um issue uh, the, the the sticking point for flying cars is energy. What else? If if we were able to solve the energy problem, what what else would be possible? Well, you know, the, the other thing is they're not going to be nice and easy like in um like you see in the movies in the sense that you to to keep the car up off the ground, um, you have to provide a large um, uh, downward thrust so that as you're throwing something down, like in a jet engine, um, your car feels an upward force, and you have to constantly be expelling a great deal of fuel and, and, and exhaust in order to have enough thrust to support the weight of the car and keep it up off the ground and, and um, actually then drive from point A, fly, I guess, from point A to point B. Um, we do have jet engines. If you put one on each four quarters of a car, man, that's going to be loud. <laughs> and, and it's also not going to be too pleasant for anyone who happens to be walking right underneath it <laughs> when you're flying by. So uh, there are aspects to that. There are ways around this, uh, to be sure, um, even if you solve that energy problem. But um, uh, it's not going to be as as sleek and um, uh, nice as in the movies, at least based on the technology we have today. Someone may invent a superior form of a jet engine. Right now there's no motivation to develop a quieter jet engine because when the jet engines are working, they're up in the upper atmosphere and there's no one around to hear them. If you needed a jet engine uh, to operate down at street level, uh, for a flying car, maybe there would be a motivation for people to develop that technology. But right now, there's no there's no incentive. Hmm. Um, you uh, you know there, we talk about flying cars and such solving the energy problem. But uh, <laughs> if you look at the sweep of technology, just in a very f- short period of time that we're living through, uh, yes. everything seems uh, possible. Is is there a technology, a a, a device that you would particularly uh, you know, find useful or, or cool that's that's still out there. There's something. There's something. So here's a real a real physics device, and the only the limitation right now is at the engineering stage. It's not at the um, it's not at the basic physics stage. Um, so, but it's engineering material science, and it's a material called a thermoelectric. 
So what does that mean? Well, a solar cell is, an exa- is, is another term for something that's called a photoelectric. And so a solar cell takes light, photo, and creates a voltage, electric. A thermoelectric takes a temperature difference and converts it in, and generates a voltage. And it can actually work backwards so that if you apply a voltage, it can generate a temperature difference. So there are, and these devices exist. The phenomenon is called the Peltier junction, but that's just words. Um, and if you have like a small solid state refrigerator that can cool something down without a compressor and a motor, frequently what they use are these what's called thermoelectric devices. Why does this matter? Why, why, why do I say that this is an exciting thing that's coming in the future? Because there's a, for example, there's an awful lot of waste heat under the hood of your car. And right now, you know, all you do with your automobile is try to make sure with the radiator that you get rid of this heat and that it doesn't cause the engine to overheat. But if you could capture some of that waste heat and use it to convert it to a useful voltage that could, say, recharge the battery in a hybrid automobile, you would get a dramatic improvement in efficiency. A power plant, you you boil water, uh, you boil water either by burning coal or natural gas or, or a nuclear power, or you burn biomass, but at the end of the day you're boiling water, you're generating steam that's turning a turbine that rotates a, a coil in a magnetic field and it's generating electricity. Hmm. Yeah, that two would thirds, be cool. Two-thirds of the heat that's generated gets wasted and sent up the smokestack. And there are thermodynamic limits on how much of that heat you could recapture, but we could easily get a third of it and reuse it in the electrical power plant, and a third of it is equal to all the energy that's generated. (laughs) I mean, we waste a tremendous amount of the energy in our power plants, and that's not because we're being careless, because that's the best that we can do. But if we could recapture this and convert it back into electricity, it would have a tremendous impact on on, uh, energy sources and everything around us. So these are these and these materials exist. The problem right now is they're just not efficient enough. They're not good enough for commercial use. But people are working very hard on this and I think it's coming and these are that's going to be something that's going to sound like oh this is just like this grungy thing with semiconductors and before you know it it's going to change dramatically energy. We've got people working on the information, but if you can change the way that we use and store energy, that's going to have a really big impact on everyone's lives. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, take another break when we come back uh, more with James Cacalios. He is author, most recently, of The Physics of Everyday Things. The subtitle is The Extraordinary Science Behind an Ordinary Day. James Cacalios is Taylor Distinguished Professor of Physics at University of Minnesota and author previously of the bestseller The Physics of Superheroes. More following this break. American teenager was shot and killed on by the next radio lab. How many people do we see killed by the police each year? Are police shooting more black people than white people? We don't know. There's no national statistics. on. No one keeps accurate statistics on police shootings. I've met 400 other mothers who's lost their children. I cannot believe that my profession, in some cases, is that out of control. That's on the next radio lab. Join us Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
I'm Bronson Teichert, an agriculture, business, and economics reporter for Utah Public Radio. I want to bring UPR listeners in-depth stories from the agricultural, business, and economics world. If you have comments, story ideas, or questions for any of us at the station, I'd love to hear them. Please visit our website at upr.org or call us at 800-826-1495. You can also share ideas with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just be sure to include the hashtag IamUPR. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is James Cacalios, author most recently of The Physics of Everyday Things. You can join this conversation by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at uh, gmail.com. Professor Cacalios, um, your uh, fictional hero here gets caught in a traffic jam. I I found this uh, (laughs) fascinating. We've all experienced this. Uh, mm-hmm. And you say traffic would always be smooth if not for the drivers. And that, <laughs> so we get into get into sociology here, but uh, there's also physics involved. That's exactly right. So um, traffic is traffic jams in particular are examples of uh, when in physics the fancy term is 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 uh, complex adaptive systems. You have a flow of cars. And the cars have a certain degree of agency. You know, as you're driving, um, you try, you're trying to get to where you're going as quickly as possible. You try to narrow the gap in the space between the cars in front of you um, based upon your awareness of the, the conditions in front of you and your response time. And so what happens is people driving down a highway, they don't leave the typical, like, you know, two seconds or a certain number of car lengths between each car, they try to pack themselves a little bit closer because everyone thinks that they're a slightly better driver. and They can get a little closer and they can respond a little faster. So the, so at, very, uh, at times where there's very few cars on the road, this doesn't matter. The density is very, very low. But then as you add more and more cars, suddenly they start all packing themselves in very closely and the system becomes unstable. And all that's necessary is that one person taps on their brakes or, or slows down even a bit, and you get a backward propagating avalanche of stopped cars. It's like building up a sand pile to the point of just stability, and then you drop one more grain of sand. And then all the cars are stopped, and even though you're in the middle of it, and there's no road construction, there's no accident, there's no actual reason for it, aside from the intrinsic instability of the traffic, you can't go anywhere until the front edge of cars uh, who can then move on eventually propagates backwards and, and reaches you. And, of course, at that point, by that point, other cars have entered the jammed region from behind. So the thing can just stay and grow and, and get bigger. And there was a traffic jam in China that lasted about nine days. <laughs> nine days? Wow. Yes. <laughs> so... Um, some of these things can be enormous, um, but but they're intrinsic. So if everyone just were to take themselves out of the equation, if you actually even just instead of closing in on the guy in front of you, you slow down a little bit, you increase the gap just a little bit. That way, any any things that stop, you have a chance to let that dissipate before you get to it, and you're not part of the instability. Um, so that the traffic can go a little bit smoother. But there, you know, that just goes against human nature mm-hmm. <laughs> to say, <laughs> to 
to say, oh, there's a space in front of you. Why don't you slow down just a few miles per hour instead of speeding up? You know, it seems to uh, uh, violate our constitutional right to cut people off. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it certainly does go against uh, human age. I guess that's why we have traffic jams, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I want to talk. Uh, oh, go ahead. No, I, that's, that's it. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about the elevator. Uh, you you mm-hmm. talk chapter three. You talk about the, uh, the elevator. Um, I'm always a little nervous getting on elevators. I want you to talk about science behind it and uh, with mm-hmm. <laughs> with uh, with well, a view also to the safety features. That's right. So um, you know the science. The elevator is just basically like a teeter totter. Um, one you have a, 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 a weight at one end. Uh, there's a rope that goes over uh, a pulley system. And then the other weight is the elevator car, and one goes up and the other goes down, and, and it's just kind of like a teeter-totter. Um, the, the safety features, uh, each, if each cable can hold up the car, oftentimes elevator cars have four to eight cables. You don't see this in TV and movies because it's not very dramatic to say, to say what if all eight cables snap simultaneously? Um, but even then, there are breaks, there are... Um, rails that run up the sides of the elevator shaft that, um, that are basically little grips, uh, brakes that, that uh, run along those lengths. And those are kept open uh, by supplying an electrical current. So if the power gets cut, their default then is to snap shut and lock onto the rail, basically a dead man's grip um, on the brakes. So you have those. Um, there are devices to, uh, to um, compensate even for the changes in acceleration and for uh, changes in air pressure when you go to a very tall building and you can kind of feel it almost. So um, there's an awful lot of thought that's gone into. Some of these elevator cars in, in high-speed high speed elevators in high-rises can get up to 40 miles per hour. So there's a tremendous amount of safety. The, the dead man, one of the things that was a problem was that those brakes with the dead man grips, they were going so fast that the brakes itself would overheat and start to melt. So um, they needed to develop ceramic materials that could withstand the high heat uh, and still provide the uh, braking. So there's a lot of interesting science that goes into just a regular elevator. Mm. The principle of the book is, it, as, you, as you mentioned, it follows a U, um, as you get up in the morning, you make breakfast, you drive into work, you use GPS, you use an easy pass, a, a self-parking feature of your car, you go to a doctor's office for a checkup, then you go to the airport, you pass through TSA security, um, you get on an airplane, the person sitting next to you is wearing noise-canceling headphones, you use your tablet to take a photo of the cloud, some clouds, a digital photograph. Then you get to a business presentation. You make a Xerox copy. You um, use an LCD projector. You have a laser pointer and a microphone. And then eventually you get back, you know, at the end of the day, you go to a hotel. You walk down the hallway. The motion sensors turn on the lights. You watch some television on a large flat-screen TV. You turn it off with your remote control and, and drift off to sleep. And wondering why are, when are scientists ever going to do something that changes people's lives? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it it's it can become it can become sort of invisible. We take it for granted. Absolutely, right? but we're yeah. surrounded in it, and and 
and and a lot of it, some of it was people trying to specifically make those devices, and a lot, but a lot of that the the science behind it was people just trying to understand how nature worked. How do atoms interact with light? How do they interact with each other? If I change this and I change that, can I get a different property? Um, can I use this to uh, so that the material's properties change whenever I shine light on it and things like that? So all of that is basic investigations of how the world works that have enabled um, transforming how our lives are lived. Hmm. I wonder, before we uh, end, uh, there's... Uh many fascinating things I learned in the book. One of them illustrates that kind of that invisible uh, nature of some of the technology. Um, I learned from your book that uh, my digital clock and a lot of the timing devices uh, are able to work because of the nature of the current coming out of that outlet. We we, right. cer- we certainly take that outlet for, for granted, but uh, it's the nature of the electric. You know, I, I think of electricity as electricity, but it's the nature of that current uh, that, that allows these devices to work. That's exactly right. That is, I mentioned this a little bit earlier when I was talking about the power plants and boiling water and rotating a coil in a magnetic field. And so the technical term for that is what the, what's going on is what's called the Faraday uh, effect, the Faraday's law, whereby if you change the orientation of a coil in a magnetic field, the amount of magnetic flux, the magnetic field strength passing through the coil is changing. And a changing magnetic field induces a current, and a changing current can induce a magnetic field. That's the beautiful symmetry that underlies radio, television, Wi-Fi. Um, that, but since the coil is continuously rotating, the field is increasing, then decreasing, then increasing and decreasing. So it's going up and down and up and down like a mass on a spring, bouncing up and down, or just a pendulum swinging back and forth. The bob, you know, at the end of a string, swinging back and forth, and as it swings back and forth, there's there's a, a large current at the bottom of the arc of the swing of the pendulum, and then at the top, uh, on either side of the swing, there's there's the the bob is not moving, so no move, no motion, no electrical current, so the current is constantly changing from large to small to zero to large to small to zero back and forth. And that's called an alternating current. And that's the current that um, we have coming out of the outlet that's generated by having the coil rotate 60 times a second at the power plant. So the, the electrical current we have is what's called 60 cycle or 60 hertz. If you go to Europe, it's 50 cycle, 50 hertz. There's nothing magic about those numbers. It's just what people have chosen uh, to use to generate the power. And so you've got something that's basically ticking 60 times a second, and you can use that ticking then as a clock. And you could use uh, certain other types of physics principles to shift that frequency down from instead of 60 times a second to a click every second or every tenth of a second, and you can use that as the basis of a timer. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, we just have a couple minutes left. I want to follow up something you said early in the program that uh, we we talked about, uh, you know, science fiction and uh, the expectations uh, that we thought we were heading into, what, an age of science? What we got instead was an age of uh, information. Well, we thought we'd have a, a transformation in energy. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's what, what we're talking need, about, yeah, yes. Yeah, what you need for, like, flying cars or, or jetpacks. And what we got were laptop computers and cell phones, um, which are basically an inf- a transformation in, in information. 
And that, of course, that has gone on. To, it's kind of symbiotic, right? It produces uh, or helps facilitate technology. But I wonder what, where, do you, where you think we, we go from here. It'd it, it probably be something unexpected. Seems like it always is. Boy, it really is. I mean, people are working on things where you're making more smart materials, smart fabrics. Um, you're going to have your clothing that will have um, not just... Um, uh, so your clothing will have potentially, you know, electronic devices woven into them. Um, you can use the the sunlight that's striking your clothing to recharge, to generate a, a voltage to recharge your batteries of your your smartphone or your GPS device. The military is obviously looking into things like that for you know obvious applications. Um, but you're also getting um, materials that will physically change in 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 response to changes in the environmental conditions and become then lighter weight or provide more thermal insulation depending on what the weather is like. And that will not even involve voltages or devices. That will just be the materials themselves. There's a tremendous amount of stuff that we're able to do. And it all seems invisible. And it's all coming to a store near you. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, well, we'll look forward forward to that, and you'll you'll likely write about it uh, when That's it happens. That's right. Uh, we've, been, we've had with us uh, physics professor James Kakalios, author most recently of The Physics of Everyday Things. That's uh, out and available. Much more to learn uh, in the book. Professor Kakalios, uh, thank you so much. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Tom. And uh, tomorrow, I hope you'll join me. I'll be uh, talking with uh, Lucy uh, Kalanathi. Uh, she is widow of uh, the author of a, a memoir, a uh, surgeon who uh, was dying, uh, penned the book, New York Times bestseller, When Breath Becomes Air. And uh, it's Paul Kalanathi. We'll talk with Lucy Kalanathi uh, next time on the program. Hope you join me. Thanks for listening. Programming to on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Moab Area Travel Council, whose support of tourism, events, and recreation in Grand County promotes and protects the natural beauty for visitors from across the state of Utah. Information available online at discovermoab.com. A statewide service of Utah State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSUFM Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, Moab, KUST, Price, KCEU, and streaming online at upr.org.